0: But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy.
1: It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
2: Hi, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is our Sunday Morning Extra our podcast featuring a memorable story from our most recent show. It's a conversation that offers insights beyond the broadcast. On this episode, I'll catch up with my former colleague and friend, one of America's most trusted voices, Tom Brokaw. I was a 25-year-old rookie when Tom and I first met. He was, at only 35, a seasoned veteran a White House correspondent during the Nixon administration. We sat side-by-side at NBC's Today Show. Tom went on to anchor the nightly news. And over all those years, there have been highs and lows. We talked about it all. Tom Brokaw, you look great.
1: Yeah, people say that to me. I, I was sick two years ago. When I was diagnosed, and I tried to keep it out of the public eye, uh, I went from having a difficult summer, a difficult spring, and I had this terrible backache, and it wouldn't go away. And my friends were saying, what's going on? I had you know, uh, ice cubes that I was carrying around in my car. And then I got diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic with multiple myeloma. I barely knew what it was. And then it was a steep roll downhill. This cancer goes right to your bones. I, it turns out I had a hole in my pelvis, I had five fractures, four fractures in my spine, and I had another hole right on my waistline. And they had all kicked in at the same time. And so thank God I got to the Mayo Clinic and just, whatever you got, pump me up, folks. I mean, put needles in me, whatever it takes, because I want to get out of this.
2: The diagnosis itself had to have been a blow.
1: Well, it was startling, Jane, because I just didn't see it coming. So I kept thinking, they're gonna tell me I've got some kind of a parasite, because I would pick those up in Africa when I was traveling. And at the end, the oncologist searched to me, and he said, uh, you have a cancer. It's called multiple myeloma. You know people who've died from this. Geraldine Ferraro, the woman who ran for vice president, died from a Frank Reynolds died. But this is his opening line to me. And I'm sitting there and I'm in two kind <laughs> of worlds One world is very personal. The other world is journalistic. I'm thinking, what do I need to know about multiple ammo? I don't, I've never heard of that before. Am I going to die? But I got very cool very quickly and I said, what does this mean for me? How long? And the guy's next answer was, he said, well, officially five years, but you're in otherwise good health. I think we can beat that. We want to run some more tests and uh, we'll go from there. And I later talked to the oncologist. I said, where was your bedside manner? he said look it was you you're a journalist and we had to get moved fast so i just had to put it out there for you and i knew you could handle it and he was right i could handle it but it was very unsettling and
2: there weren't any good news
1: no and i didn't tell anybody they did some more tests that night i had a very very hard flight back to montana meredith picked me up at the airport i had not told her and i didn't want to tell her we live on a really wild road and it was late at night and i didn't want to tell her on that road so we got back to the ranch and I fixed a big drink <laughs> and I sat on the side of the bed and I said Our magic life has made a bad turn. I get emotional and uh, It was hard Because I just didn't know where it was gonna go and Meredith being Meredith just sat and looked at me and said tell me more What do I need to know? And I said, this is about about as much as I know at this point. I think I'm going to get through it, but there's no guarantee.
2: This was how many years ago?
1: It'll be six years this fall.
2: You have already exceeded that five year.
1: I was a good patient. I took whatever they told me to take, so um, that helped. And right away, uh, I came back to Sloan Kettering, and there were uh, choices that you you could do uh, stem cells that they would extract from you and then they would reintroduce them to your system and you would have to be in isolation for three to five months and a friend of mine who also had this said well at our age I'm not sure we want to do that because it takes away our you know what life we have and They say that you can beat it without doing it So I conferred with some other people and they said you're in otherwise good health I think you don't have to do stem cell transplants and I didn't it was a risk, but I thought I'm willing to run the risk
2: It's so much saying yes when yes was the right answer and saying no when no was the right answer?
1: Well, you know, the other thing is I was in very gifted hands. I talked to the best people in this field, and I was willing to take a certain amount of risk because I did feel I had a kind of an inherent strength that I could... Try to get through this. And then they discovered the fractures in my back, like in December, and they went in and fixed those. Went it. in
2: and fixed those was a very difficult surgery, well, I'm Well, it was
1: called kypoplasty. They go into your spine, and they shoot it with a kind of cement to fix the hole in your spine. And when I went in, they didn't tell me the consequences of it. Uh, when I went in, uh, I said something to Meredith, and when I came out of this, she looked at me and said, how tall are you? And I said, I'm six feet. She said, you're now five eight." because of the treatment, you, mm-hmm. you, you get compressed like that. And I, I'm not so much aware of it now, but right away I was, because I'd have my picture taken with everybody. I'd be the shortest guy, and I used to be one of the you know, one of the guys who was kind of the right, right size.
2: When did you decide then to not keep it to yourself, but also instead to broadcast it?
1: It wasn't my idea. It got out in like March, I was diagnosed in, uh, uh, late August, early September. And then it was March, it got out. I'm not sure how. I think it might have been leaked by a healthcare worker of some kind. Anyhow, it was out there. Meredith and I put out a statement saying, uh, we appreciate the attention. This is a family matter. Uh, we're, we're doing well with it. And we'd like to just be allowed to treat it as cancer within our family.
2: The Tom Brokaw I, I, I worked with uh, for decades uh, was known and is still known Duncan, the Wonder Horse. Duncan, the Wonder Horse, because nobody in the industry had your stamina. You were famous for, uh, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Famous for his stamina and robust, uh, good health, uh, climbing mountains—not uh, metaphorically—climbing <laughs> <laughs> mountains. So now you, two things. Forced to maybe slow down. Not
1: and, maybe, I have slowed down, yeah.
2: <laughs> but you've still applied that Broca, Duncan the Wonder horsedness to the project of getting the most out of what energy and health you've got um, and still running slower, but rings around the rest of us still. Well, uh,
1: it's been an adjustment. There's no question about that, but it's at the same time what has always driven me when I knew you and before that and before that was that I grew up in a working-class family in South Dakota, and I had big ambitions and big dreams, and then they suddenly started to get fulfilled, and I wanted to take advantage of every one of them at every opportunity, and people be willing to say, hey, would you like to climb a you know, a mountain out, and my friend Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia it took me up the Grand Teton on a very difficult route, my first time on rock. So I thought, yeah, I'm gonna try that. I was trying everything. Now, I have to dial down. I mean, I, I can still, I don't ride bikes the same way I can ride them, but I don't ride them at length. I swim a lot more. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm also 79, <laughs> and I think I would've dialed down a little bit anyway at this age.
2: You definitely, are uh, better looking, a better-looking, younger a younger-looking man than you were just a couple of years ago.
1: That's true. You know, I'm in, in remission, and I've also learned how to live with it. Frankly, that has something to do with it. Um, but I get up and I say, "You're going to be 80 years old." You know, I was also known as the boy wonder at one point because I was the youngest guy, and NBC led all those big jobs. And I, God, yeah, I just can't, I can't believe it. But I'm still very, very lucky because of Meredith and the family and the opportunities that I've had, you know, the jobs that I've had, the places that we've been able to go that were the fulfillment of a kid who lived in a working-class house in South Dakota. You know, I don't dwell on the fact that I've got this cancer, uh, and I, it's not, I don't think it's going to beat me. I think that uh, people have said to me in the health fields, you know, we think that you'll live a long, good life and it won't be multiple longer. you'll just live with it.
2: I don't think it's going to beat me. You and uh, Meredith were married in 1962. I was invited to your 50th wedding anniversary, which means you've got a 60th coming up in 2022. Not a doubt in Amazing. my mind. You're going to make 60th, 60th well, we, wedding. You well, know, we
1: went to high school in South Dakota and uh, she was uh, all everything. Mm-hmm. You know, she was brighter than hell and she was a head cheerleader and we had the leads of the play and she was Girls Nation, I was Boys State and all that, but we never never dated, frankly. We were pals. And then when we got together, we were perfect partners for each other, because I wanted to have an adventurous life and she was up for it. I mean, she's climbed, she's been on places where I haven't been, you know, she's been in northern Pakistan on glacier treks, for example, and she's been in Bhutan on a trek Uh, She's fearless about it and when she decided to take up horseback riding at age 50 She became an expert rider right away. So we were we were meant for each other in ways that we didn't know at the time and uh, We often even now after all these years look at each other and the success that we've had and what comes with it You know the ability to get your kids through school and, and have a comfortable life financially and travel We look at each other and say boy, how did that happen? You know, but it's been great i heard you tell a wonderful story.
2: Uh, the two of you uh, kids uh, heading off, you, you get a, a, a big new job in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, so you're heading from the Midwest with your, 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 your young bride and lamenting, you're just too late. All the big stories have been done, mm. yeah. <laughs> no more news.
1: Seriously. That's how I felt. I remember I was just writing about the Kennedy assassination recently, and I was in Omaha when that happened. I remember thinking at that time, my God, this doesn't happen, but it'll probably be the last big story of my life. And we got to California. I was 26 years old, and right away, the world was changing rapidly. Ronald Reagan was running for president Vietnam, was going full bore. And I got involved in the Reagan campaign as a reporter immediately because a lot of the smart people said, oh, he's not going anywhere. So that was a big break for me, and I was able to cover him right away. And that was a huge deal when Ronald Reagan got elected governor of California and then later president of the United States. I was on the air on election night in Los Angeles in the studio reporting back to New York about how he was doing, and I hear this, hey, kid, kid. I turn around, there were two guys standing at the stage door and they said, how's Reagan doing? And I said, oh, he's going to win. And they said, kid, are you sure? And I said, yes, Mr. Hope and Mr. Crosby, he's going to win. <laughs> I was in Yankton, South Dakota two days ago. <laughs> you know, now I'm telling Bob Hope and Bing Crosby yeah, about then, what's going on.
2: Then you go to uh, you know, Washington, and uh, this is back in the days when the network would have had you know, one White House correspondent, not a team, but one White House correspondent, and you were Watergate.
1: Yeah I was I was White House correspondent. I arrived and Watergate was underway at that point. We didn't know how it was going to turn out. And we had a great life in California. It was not easy to leave, but I knew this was a big political story and I knew I knew a lot of the Nixon team. I knew Bob Haldeman from California and Ron Ziegler and others. So I was kind of connected. And then I got there and from the moment that I arrived, all hell started breaking loose. I mean, Agnew had to resign, and we had a Saturday Night Massacre, and we had the war in, in the Middle East, and all this stuff was just flying out. And I was on the air seven days a week. I don't think I had a time off of any kind. And then we were on airplanes because Nixon was going to prove he was still the president, so we were going to Russia, we were going to the Middle East, we are going all over America to prove that he's still the president, and then keeping track of the very complicated legal situation that was going on. Were they going to be able to impeach him? Could they put together enough evidence for it? You know, could he escape that? And it turns out I asked him the last question that was asked in a press conference, because I'd been working on uh, what I thought was the right thing, that he kept saying that he had executive privilege. That was part of the presidential thing. So we started checking with legal scholars, and. One of them was uh, Alexander Bickel, was a very conservative legal scholar. He said, except in cases of impeachment, then you don't have executive privilege. So I had that question. That was the last question that he took in a news conference. When I raised it with him, I said, fact is, Mr. President, when you say that you are not liable for this, executive privilege has no application in an impeachment proceeding. Aren't you misleading the American public? Ron Ziegler said that, oh, you have no right to. I said, he's the president. I get to ask him what I want to ask him. Those were heady days. And I had, there were great colleagues all around me. The old Washington Press Corps, Peter Lissigore, and others who'd been around were generous to me. Dan Rather was there for CBS, and he was one tough competitor, obviously. And there were others as well. So it was a real kind of fraternity and sorority of people. Helen Thomas, I had a great friend by the name of Fred Zimmerman, who worked for the Wall Street Journal. He was a print guy and a chess master, and I was a broadcaster, and I didn't like chess, but we saw the world in the same way, so we all kind of protected each other.
2: I do not remember uh, television entering our house. It was always there. You, on the other hand, must have a very specific memory of when a television first arrived in the Brokaw household. Yeah, we
1: didn't see it until I was 15. Uh, I lived in a really remote part of South Dakota and and a friend's mother would drive us 75 miles at World Series time to stand in front of a department store and watch the World Series on television. True story, we'd drive to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or Sioux City, Iowa. We didn't have television, we had radio. So we get to Yankton, we finally got a television set. And it was, for me, Nirvana. And the, uh, the other fortuitous part of it, it was the beginning of Huntley Brinkley. And that was a whole new form of telling the news. And uh, they became kind of my idols. And I watched him. And I made the decision. I, I remember this vividly. I was kind of... I was not... In college, I was in and out. You know, I was hanging around. I was chasing girls and drinking and having a good time. And I wasn't really as focused as I need to be. But on the election night in 1960... I sat down at 6 o'clock at night to watch The Returns, and as you remember, it was a long night, and it was very close. And at 8 o'clock in the morning, I went to bed and I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be a correspondent and cover politics. I was a political junkie anyway, but that's what I want to do. Could I I get there, possibly? So in writing this book, I was reminded uh, that I get to California quickly. More I went to Omaha and then I went to Atlanta, and then I went and by the time I'm twenty-six, I'm in Los Angeles covering Reagan and a lot of national politics. And Brinkley comes out to do the news. And what was like God came into the newsroom. i you know, I'm gonna and they said, We want you to brief Brinkley on on Ronald Reagan, put together a reel and tell him about what's going on. And she's like, Okay. So David came in, he was very cordial, but he was David, you know, he talked kind of in clip tones. So he said to me, "Um, so, how has Reagan changed since he became a candidate? And I said, well, Mr. Brinkley, he used to be seen around town, he'd have a sports jacket and slacks and loafers, but when he became a candidate, they dressed him only in blue suits and with serious ties and with serious shoes. And he said, "Um, okay, so that night on not like Brinkley, David opens up and says, good evening, from California, where Ronald Reagan, who used to be seen around town in loafers and slacks, now is appearing only in blue. I was like, geez, what else did I say to him? What else did I tell him? <laughs> but it was Brinkley, because that was you know, that was insight, frankly. I mean, and it, it made an impression on me about how you, you connect with people by telling them the stuff that is really insightful about the character change or whatever.
2: This is how, how research is done today, but you Google Tom Brokaw, what comes up is anthrax. Yeah. That's what comes up.
1: It's like the most terrifying thing I've ever been through. Tell me. Well, it was right after 9-11, and I had this uh, fantastic secretary and an assistant, and Erin uh, O'Connor, mm-hmm. uh, wife of a cop. And she really organized the office. And she was very alert to the dangers uh, without bothering me because the community was, in, you know, on edge and, uh, and she was keeping stacks of letters that were coming in that were threatening and when she said you should take a look at this one so I looked and it, it was misspelling and everything about you know you're a traitor to your country and all that and I picked it and I said I don't think that. then she said I gotta tell you I got a letter yesterday and I emptied it out because it had stuff in it and we sent it to the police lab uh, and it turns out it was benign but it really troubled me and then about four days later she said, I've got this kind of rash thing. I don't know what's going on. And her friends came to me and said, you know, that looks a little more serious than we thought. And I went to her I said, Aaron, because I was so busy on the air and she didn't want to bomb. I said, Aaron, what's going on? And she said, I don't know, I've got this rash thing. So we sent her to a dermatologist and they said it was a brown reclusive spider bite. That was the diagnosis we got like three times. She said, I haven't been out in the country. Yet. Why would I get a spider bite? Then it spread a little bit, and it looked worse. And she came back to work. She was feeling better because we had Cipro, a, a drug that was dealing with it. She said, I'm feeling a little better. But her girlfriends went to the bathroom with her and came out and said to me, Oh, my God, this looks terrible. We had a friend in town who was a great, great exotic disease guy, Kevin Cahill. He's a doctor. He would, did third world medicine. And uh, I'd used him when I'd gone off to Africa. And I, he'd been away. And he knew Aaron because she was Aaron O'Connor and Kevin they have a great Irish connection. So I called him, I said, I've got my assistant's got this thing going on, we don't know what it is, and I sent her up there. And Kevin said, I can't rule it out. He was the only one that we knew who had ever seen an anthrax uh, scab of some kind. So then we made arrangements to send you know, a sample to the CDC in Atlanta and also to the... Uh, to Fort McHenry in uh, Maryland, where they did the secret stuff on on that kind of thing. And they said, well, we don't think it's anthrax. And two days later, uh, I got a call at seven o'clock in the morning from Bernie Kerik, who was the uh, New York police commissioner. And he said, you have a secretary by the name of Aaron O'Connor? And I said, don't tell me. He said, yeah, she's got anthrax. They just made the match. The world changed. I mean, it was just terrifying. It was like a movie of some kind. I called her. She had a two-year-old, took her a while to get, have a daughter, and she was terrified. They were in the car on the way to Kevin's to see if, what, what treatment they should be getting, and they were in panic with good reason. I was in a panic. I ran almost all the way to 30 Rock. We had a meeting up on the 50th floor of 30 Rockefeller Plaza with the FBI, the mayor, on the phone, the CDC. What the hell do we do now? We've got a whole building. We've got a whole... And they said, well, we don't know. We think it's been too long. They didn't have a, much of a clue. And I went down uh, to our office, and everybody was caught in the headlamps. Yeah. I said, Anybody wants to go see their doctor, you can go right now. Uh, I, we don't know whether this place is hot or not. We think not. But we've got to put on a show tonight. We've got to put on the news tonight, and we'll, we'll see what we have to do. Well, the long and the short of it is that Erin did get treated appropriately. And it was very difficult for her, to put it mildly. And uh, she's been very brave, and you know, her daughter, that daughter, is in college now, and life has gone on. It turns out an intern had emptied the anthrax envelope, and she had spores all down her leg, and we were not aware of that. And then she came and said, you know, I have these things, and so they had to go to her apartment and clean it out, and then put her in treatment, and we kept everything kind of under the cover on all that. And my camera crews came in, guys like your guys here, and they were reporting for their shift, and they said, no one said anything to us. What the hell is going on? So we got him Cipro, and then I kept uh, in my desk a uh, a bottle of uh, a bottle of booze <laughs> and I, at the end of the nightly news that night, I walked out and I said, "Okay, guys, here we are together we 'll take Cipro and this <laughs> you know uh, so we all kind of bonded over that, and then we got through it, but it, it was the whole building it, it was, was <laughs> one of the worst experiences of my life because no one had any answers and uh And it was so emotionally traumatic for my secretary and for other people as well, that I think we gave Cipro to half the population of New York. If you're walking by 30 Rock, you got some Cipro. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, we did.
1: But what was really scary was that the city was so unprepared. They just had no way of dealing with it.
2: Got through it, though. Remember uh, the flyovers. I mean, the children, grown-ups, all of us, yeah, um, that I mean, true. to this day, that you know, I still, yeah, you know, and I I still have that, you know, those memories. I guess you don't get over that. I don't know a side effect or an effect of of uh, cancer, cancer treatment is fatigue. We began the interview talking about Duncan, the Wonder Horse, and your famous
1: yeah.
2: uh, stamina, and I you know, I still, I still see that. Fatigue is something I can. Really? I can relate to <laughs> um, uh, if you you know fatigue. I don't know if it's easier to roll out the door despite pain, but if you're t- if you're just tired.
1: Well, I uh, for the first time in my life I have real fatigue, uh, which I I sleep more than I ever have before. Uh, I took a nap before we sat down here. I went in there, I, you know, I took a 15-minute nap. I've now calibrated it in a way that I can go where I need to go. I, last weekend, we'd been traveling a lot. We were in North Africa with our grandchildren, and then I was in Normandy and with Paris and London, and then came home and it caught up to me, quite honestly. Uh, and I'm 79, you know. I'm, the other thing is that, you know, I'm, my system, I think, probably is running down a little bit. So I just have to measure it a little more carefully about what I do and when I do it, and I'd, I have no no apologies for taking a nap. You know, i I'd say, oh, look, I'm tired, I'm going to go and take a nap, and so I do. And I think it comes with this particular age. Uh, on the other hand, I've written a book in the last six months, and I, you know, I'm in there working on that. And I feel guilty if I don't get out and do something really active with the dogs. And I'm looking forward to a big summer in Montana and trout streams and, you know, and out on the prairie and with my dogs. So. I have nothing to complain about, Jane, I mean, good God. You know, I've had this great, great life, and I've been married to Meredith, and we have these wonderful children, and they're really doing well, and we live beyond any expectation that we could have had when we left Yankton on August 17th, 1962. Way beyond.
2: Thank you, Duncan. You have a great summer.
1: I have one last thing to say. Keep the jacket.
2: There's a story <laughs> <laughs> What does that mean, Tom? Why, our, our, our little inside joke about that? Well what the does inside that mean? joke is that
1: you and I are on Mike Douglas and you had a dress and it was a it's hard to describe. It seemed to be metallic and it was a what they called a sack dress, I guess in those days and you and it was short in addition to all of that. So we did Mike Douglas and it went very well. And we were walking off and I looked at you and I said, burn the dress, and you never forgot it. So I want you to know, keep the jacket. Oh,
2: yeah. I I don't remember the dress. I don't remember nothing. I remember burn uh, the dress. Um, (laughs) That was. uh... Well,
1: you know, I, I was so presumptuous of me, but I was, we were in this together. You know, you and I were.
2: Nobody else was going to help me.
1: <laughs> I know. Nobody when, else. There we were. We were, no. Well, I used to say it was like boat. They NBC put us in this raft and set us afloat. And you yeah. kind of, okay, do for yourself.
2: The difference was, I was with Tom Brokaw.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I know, but it was chaos, frankly, at <laughs> pro time. So.
2: No, Didn't know.